Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, I am Ezra Klein, host of this fine podcast you are listening to now. I've got an episode today that I'm genuinely thrilled by. Jim Young Kim is someone who is sort of, I think, a hero of public health. He's a, a founder of Partners in Health, which was a revolutionary public health group that did provisions of really fantastic, really high-quality healthcare to the world's poor, and didn't just do amazing work in terms of their direct action, in terms of the, the people they treated, but really changed how people thought about what kinds of treatment you could and should give to the world's poor. Before them, there, there was a consensus that poor people should kind of get poor health care, and, and they really played a tremendous role in changing that. And in doing, they saved a countless number of lives and really improved a lot of others. Jim Young Kim became later the president of Dartmouth University, and he's now the president of the World Bank, where he is able to help people on an unbelievably massive scale. He's just a fascinating, brilliant guy. We had a great conversation here in which he was really open and honest about his upbringing, about what it was like for him growing up in America, about the Eugene McCarthy rally he went to as a kid, about his feelings of alienation and his search for authenticity in college, about how he thinks about running big organizations, about what kinds of books he really cares about. I found the interview completely fascinating. It was a real privilege to get to do it, and I hope you all enjoy it as much as I did. Before we get to it, I've got one request for you, which is that if you are enjoying these shows and these interviews, please go and, and share one with a friend. Go put whichever one you think is the best on your Facebook page or, or put it out on Twitter. Let people know there's something going on here that they may want to be part of. And as always, I am looking for your input. I would love to know who you want to see on the show. You can email me at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. And let me know. I, I take your recommendations really seriously, and a couple of them have already led to guests being booked. So please send them over. Please help me make this show the, the one you want to listen to. So with that, here is Jim Young Kim. I, I hope you enjoy this uh, as much as I did. I saw a TED Talk you gave one time, and you talked about how your mother told you that you needed to live your life as a fraternity. Do I have that line? Yes, right? it's very that's right. evocative. That's right. What did that line mean? Can you give me the, the, the context of it and how you, you understood it? So my mother was the top student in her high school, which was the top 
high school in Korea. Now, uh, this was at a time when the percentage of people who went to college or college graduates in Korea was less than 10%, where even literacy rates were only 20 or 30%. Korea was one of the poorest countries in the world. So in that group, she got a scholarship, came to the United States, did her college education. And where then did she go to college? She, she went to college. Well, she ended up graduating from a place called Skerritt College, and Skerritt College was part of the sort of Vanderbilt system, and so she took courses at Vanderbilt and, and did her full four-year degree, and then she went to Union Theological Seminary, where she spent two years in the 1950s studying with people like Reinhold Niebuhr. So, mm-hmm. you know, things like, you know, you need to search for the ultimate meanings in your life was kind of part of the language that, that she used with us all the time. So from a very young age, she'd give us books. I mean, I remember getting the Fire Next Time by James Baldwin when I was like in junior high. Oh, and, wow. Uh, and uh, It's heavy reading for a junior high schooler. Did you read it? I did. I did. I didn't understand all of it, but I knew <laughs> it was evocative and the language, of course, was so powerful. And I remember she always had us watching uh, Martin Luther King and the speeches of Martin Luther King. In 1972, she took me and a couple of three other people in the entire city in Iowa that we were growing up in who were supporting George McGovern. She took us to a McGovern rally at the University of Iowa, which is just 30 miles Wait, away. Wait, how old were you when you were supporting George 12. McGovern? 12, 12 years old. 12 years old. <laughs> you were, you were a radical 12-year-old. <laughs> it was, uh, I was in seventh grade, and we were sort of playing through the election, and everyone was for Nixon, and there literally were three of us for McGovern. And so she took all three of us to the rally. And, oh, wow. you know, University of Iowa it was just this amazing place. Everyone had long hair. Everyone was smoking pot everywhere. And for us 12-year-olds to sit there and listen to George McGovern, you know, talk about the war, it was a great experience. And so for her, what that meant for her was, look, don't chase these uh, small things that you think are interesting right in front of you. Think about what your life really means and, uh, and, and what you want to be, what you want to do in the world. The notion that social justice should be the thing that structures your life was something that I was thinking about from a very young age. Martin Luther King was probably the biggest influence on me. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. in, in this speech you gave, you talked about how your father is an immensely practical person. He, right. He's a dentist. He, right. He's very solid. Was he behind taking you to McGovern out of school to go to McGovern rallies? I mean, was this a kind of joint project or was one side of the home sort of very feet on the ground and the other side of the home living for eternity? Yeah, it, it, was, a, it was a great combination. So just, you know, I tell this story a lot, but uh, I started off my education at the University of Iowa. I did a year and a half there and then I transferred uh, to Brown. The first semester that I was at Brown, I came home and I got in the car. And my father was driving along the road. The, the airport, we lived in a town called Muscatine, Iowa, and the airport was about 30 miles away. So we were driving along the road, and he said, so, uh, so Jim, what do you think you want to major in? I said, Dad, you know, I think I want to major in philosophy and political science, and, and I may want to run for office someday. And uh, he literally pulled the car over to the side of the road and looked back <laughs> at me and said, look, when you finish your residency, you can do anything you want. <laughs> and so, so I, in fact, at the end, that's kind of what I did, because I, I got admitted to medical school. Did you major in a hard science or Well, I, I, I sort of fudged it. I, ma- I majored in something called human biology. So mm-hmm. it was a combination of sociology, anthropology, and biology, all sort of done together. It was a great major. It exists in only two places, I understand, at Brown and at Stanford. So it was a, it was a fantastic time, and I was able to do all those things at once. And then luckily, I got to, to Harvard Medical School, and they had just started an MD-PhD program in the social sciences. So I immediately applied to that, and that's what I did. I did, I did medicine and anthropology at the same time. Both of my parents have had a huge influence. I mean, I've always been focused on this notion of social justice. People that I've worked with, we never were either ideological about it or insistent on a particular view, but we always thought 
What is the implication, for example, of me and, and the person I've worked with closely for years, Paul Farmer, who is part of the, uh, the who's the, the focus of the story in Mountains Beyond Mountains? Mm-hmm. You know, the question we always asked ourselves was, given our, and Paul used to refer to, to it as our ridiculously elaborate educations, because we were both doing MDs and PhDs in anthropology, what's the nature of our responsibility to the world? And so Did for you us, meet Paul Farmer in school? Yeah. Well, it was right after, it was in, it was in 1983, right? He had just graduated from Duke. I had just graduated from Brown. I was in my first year of medical school. He came back from Haiti because after he graduated, he went to Haiti. And we met in an anthropology seminar at Harvard. And we started talking about, well, so you know, this question, given that we're going to be medical doctors, what's the nature of our responsibility to the world? And then we started working together directly in 1988. So it's been a, it's been a long, it's been almost a 30-year collaboration that, that we've uh, worked together. It was both practical and deeply embedded in big ideas. And so when we tried to figure out, so you know, this development enterprise is tricky, right? You know, there were so many critiques of development. In fact, I was very involved in critiques of the World Bank. Tim Geithner, who I was a president of Dartmouth at the time, when he called me to ask me to interview for the job, I thought, are you kidding? I was the editor of a book that was just, you know, <laughs> advocating for the closing of the World Bank, you know, and on its 50th anniversary. And I've been nothing but critical of this institution. Tim and the people who were vetting me said, oh, no, no, you know, it wouldn't disqualify you. This notion that... Uh, that you can combine very practical pursuits with very big, powerful ideas. I guess that's kind of been the organizing sort of uh, structure of my life uh, from a pretty young age. I, w- I want to stay in the, this sort of pre-med moment for a mm-hmm. minute. When you decided to take that path after your father pulls over the car right. and says, you can do whatever you want after yeah. your residency, do you see going to medical school as aligned with living a life of social justice? Or is your view at that point that you're doing the responsible, solid thing yeah. and, and, and getting your, your sort of fallback career in case you need it in the future. Yeah. At the time, I think my father's motivation was to say, look, and he used to use language like this. He said, you know, you're, you're a Chinaman. You're a Chinaman living in this country, and you have to have something that nobody can take away from you. And, and as you look back at the history of other ethnic groups, you know, the, this is sort of a common kind of theme that if you're a lawyer or an engineer or a doctor, they can't take that away from you. And therefore, they can't decide that you're not going to be able to make a living just because of who you are or what you look mm-hmm. like. We grew up in Iowa. My father was a dentist, so we were relatively well off compared to most people. But there wasn't a single day when we forgot that we were not of this place. I mean, you know, we, we looked different, and uh, we had wonderful friends, and I had a very good experience there. You know, the minute you step out of the place in the city where everyone knew who you were, it's things like, oh, you speak English very well, or, you know, sort of fake karate chop kind of things. I mean, for people who lived on the West Coast, like you, Ezra, right? right. You know, Asians are just part of the scene, and they've been... I'm sure for your entire life, right? right? But in Iowa, we were growing up at a time when made in Japan was the big joke, right? If something broke, you'd say made in Japan, right? Huh. This, was, this was before the quality revolution and Toyota started making the best cars in the world. This was, I was living there at a time when Toyota made the worst cars in the world, according to a lot of people, right? Asians were this exotic thing. And while Iowa people generally are, are very kind people, there is the sense that these people are human, but we're not quite sure if they're fully human, right? And if you, if you look, as an anthropologist, I've studied this, mm-hmm. and if you look 
back, or if you, even if you just watch an episode of Mad Men, right? And, and, you, and you look, this was- As 19, I have. Right? This is 1960, right? I mean, I, I had never seen this, and I watched an episode of it recently. And what's striking is how much they smoke, how much they drink, and how they talk about people of color and women and people of, of different religions. I mean, you know, the way they, they talk about Jewish people, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, oh my God, is that- that, was that real? Well, I can tell you it was real because I experienced it directly. You know, there was this sense that we may be the enemy. We're certainly different. It's interesting that you speak English so well, but who are you really? And one of the things that I take such delight in saying these days is that what's so interesting about the world today is if you look at the demographics, the most uh, advanced economies are sort of losing their young working class, and they're sort of u- losing this group of people who are doing the more menial, simple tasks. And there's this explosion of young people in the poor parts of the world. Mm-hmm. So in fact, if a country wants to especially advanced economies, if they want to do well in the global economy, they've really got to deal with diversity, with inclusion, with tolerance. These are the great tasks of our time. And so I wrote an op-ed during the middle of the, the migration, you know, when migration really started picking up and there was such concern in Europe. I wrote, look, I'm a migrant. I came here. But then I turned around and I started challenging countries, you know, we had just put out a report on the demographics of the world, right? Mm -hmm. So the places that have the highest income are the places that actually need the people who are now living in poor countries where there's there's this demographic explosion. We talk about the potential of a demographic dividend. And so a nation state's ability to accept people who look differently, who speak a different language, who have a different religion, the ability to do that, I think, right now, is going to be one of the indicators for success economically in the future. Sexism is another one. Korea and Japan are both facing this problem that if they get women involved in the workforce up to the OECD average, they're going to experience multiple points of GDP Mm -hmm. improved growth. But in order to do that, they've got to really deal with the deeply embedded sexism that, that exists in the culture. They've got to do things like make childcare more available. Of all the structural reforms that Japan is going through right now, this is probably the most difficult. But isn't it wonderful that now, you know, as the World Bank president, I can say, you know, racism, sexism, xenophobia, these are the things that all you advanced economies have to really work on if you want to be successful going forward. I experience what it's like going from being, who are these people, right? You know, you speak English well, you know, uh, what are you doing here? I mean, I was actually, when, I, when we first moved to this country when I was five, it was Dallas, Texas. And I'll never forget, I was actually kicked out of the home of one of my friends because his older brother came home and saw that here was this funny looking guy, literally kicked me out of the house. Wow. And the kids at the daycare center I used to go to, used to call me flat face and literally slap me across the face and call me flat face. And when my mother said, hey, what, what's going on here? They told her she was being too sensitive, that you know, <laughs> these are just kids, right? So those experiences were absolutely trivial compared to, for example, what you know, African-Americans went through, the kinds of horrific experiences with racism and, and sexism and anti-Semitism that had happened over the years, absolutely trivial. On the other hand, it's really important to remember that that's what the world was like and that the full humanity, literally, from the perspective of the West, the full humanity of people who are not white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, even Catholics were suspect, right? Mm -hmm. The full humanity of others in the context of this extremely powerful group of people who did run the world for a Mm -hmm. long time, that has not gone away. 
I think that's why you still see things like Black Lives Matter. But I can say now, as a banker, because you know, in the last three and a half years I've become <laughs> a banker, working so closely with economists, I can say that, look, tolerance, open-mindedness, a commitment to really including people in the fabric of society, that's what you need. So I grew up, uh, as you mentioned, in Southern California. And the place <clears throat> I grew up in was very heavily Asian and very heavily Hispanic. Yeah. And so the idea that immigration is and migration is good for your economy is very intuitive to me. Mm -hmm. And yet, when I'm sort of entered the, the broader political conversation as a, as a journalist, one thing that always struck me as very fascinating was there is an intuition that it is bad for an economy to not have a high enough birth rate. Right. When people talk about Europe or Japan having a low birth rates, they get immediately that it's a problem. And they understand that it's right. a good thing that America has a relatively high birth rate, although that birth rate is largely driven by, by immigrants. Right. What they have a lot of trouble with is the idea that bringing in workers from abroad is a good thing for the economy, even though it is virtually the same mechanism. Mm -hmm. And not just that, when you worry about competition for jobs, someone who's coming from another country and doesn't speak your language is clearly not in competition for the same job to the degree that another person born in your country is. What you might imagine is an economic intuition, what does competition do for people in an economy, is actually not an economic intuition. It's an intuition driven by how do we feel about people who we consider like us versus people who are not like us. Right. right. Of course, this debate is raging in the United States today. And I know that if you have lots of migrants who are unskilled, you know, who, who are coming as economic refugees, it does create problems. There's no question about it. This is something that, of course, Europe is just struggling mightily with right now. But from my perspective as an anthropologist, I think one of the things that we just have to admit is that overall, this larger project of living in a world where there is tolerance, living in a world where we try to be multilingual, multicultural, living in a world where gender equity is, the, is among the most important and highest uh, values that we cherish, these are difficult arguments to make. And we, in the university, for example, you know, in, uh, when I was at Dartmouth, there is that war going on, but is at a different level altogether, you know, microaggressions versus free speech. This is a, that's a complicated argument that's going on there. But it's very difficult. And yet, I think it's the, um, one of the most important tasks that leaders, and certainly intellectuals, people in universities, we have to now elaborate a compelling argument for that kind of openness and inclusion. And we have it. And the, the people who've uh, been uh, elaborating arguments of intolerance, of, uh, of xenophobia, of violence against those who are different from you, they have been dominating the airwaves. And the other part of the argument has been caricatured into this sort of campus space movements that seem, if you don't really understand the context, that seem ridiculous to many people, mm -hmm. as far as I can tell. Where and how can we begin to elaborate this argument that's really predicated on a pretty radical notion that all human beings are human beings. I mean, this was Jean-Bertrand Aristide's great slogan during his campaign, Mun Se Mun, in Haiti. Every human is a human. And it seems so simple. But um, it was the idea that drove everything we did at Partners in Health. It was this notion that just because a person is poor and just because they live in a poor community doesn't mean that we can pat ourselves in the back and congratulate ourselves by just offering a few vaccinations and not much more. You know, we felt that if you're there and if you're a human being and you're in this situation, what you have to do is everything you can to bring the kind of quality of care that you'd expect for your own mother. Now, it was hard, and we were criticized like crazy by many different organizations saying it's not realistic, but so much of what we did 
which seemed like, uh, you know, you, you just can't do that when it comes to poor people. Now we do. And it's become sort of uh, so much a part of the fabric that people can't believe that literally now 13 years ago, some of the most respected people in the world in the area of global health were saying, well, you know, uh, antiretroviral treatment is great, but it's not going to be possible for all 25 million Africans who are infected. Everybody said that, Ezra. I mean, you know, you're going to hear differently. Everyone has remade themselves into AIDS activists and treatment activists, but they weren't. I can tell you, the people who I, to this day, respect, admire, revere, were saying, it's too complicated. You just can't do this with poor people. And, you know, people like Paul and I were saying, but wait a minute. You're telling 25 million people in Africa, literally, that they're dead? I mean, this will be, this was what our generation will be remembered for. We will be remembered as a generation, especially physicians, who watched and fretted as 25 million people died because we thought it was just too inconvenient, too difficult, too expensive to treat these people. So this insistence that every human being is a human being, it really goes back to how I grew up, and not because I experienced racism. As I said, those were completely trivial experiences. I mean, I, the comforts that my family were able to afford me, the fact that I lived in a peaceful, calm town in Iowa, it, this was not hardship. On the other hand, I do remember what it feels like when people look at you and think that you might not quite be as fully human as they are. This is going to be the great, great challenge, I think, for all of human societies. The act of really respecting the humanity of every single other person on this planet is the most difficult thing to do. It is, in fact, though, our task. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Gray Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Borough.com slash box. Set the scene for me a bit. How did you meet Paul Farmer? And how did you form that? 
partnership, that intellectual and eventually professional partnership. Well, you know, it goes back to uh, one of our mentors, Arthur Kleinman. Arthur is uh, still a professor at Harvard, and he's the guy who really invented in every sense of the word medical anthropology. So you know, this was his field. He's a, he was a psychiatrist who had studied anthropology, and he built this group of people all over the world who wanted to study how medicine and anthropology might tackle this problem of health and lack of health, illness, sickness, in ways that would provide profound insights. Paul and I were in a seminar of his, and he said, you two guys should meet. I think you guys would hit it off. And so we started a conversation, and I'll, I'll never forget, we were in the conference room. It was an evening seminar. And then we went to Harvard Square. There's a place, I think it's still there, Obon Pen, the uh, coffee shop. And it was snowing. And we sat outside drinking coffee, talking for hours about, so why are you interested in medicine? And why are you interested in anthropology? And what we agreed on was that it was because of social justice reasons. And then we sort of went off, and Paul we were a couple of years apart in school. He was doing his basic science while I was doing graduate school and then vice versa. So we weren't around all the time. But then in 1988, Paul was hit by a car, almost died. And I started sort of helping him out a little bit. And then we started talking. And I had just gotten back from doing my field work in Korea. When I was in college, this notion of racism and who am I and am I fully human and what does it mean that I was you know, living in a place where they kind of looked at me as is so other that, you know, mm-hmm. that, uh, uh, that I wasn't sure in my own mind who I was. So a lot of people have identity conflicts, especially Asian Americans. A lot of people have that. And generally, they get over it pretty quickly. You know, but for me, I had built it up so much in my mind that, that the only way I could get over it was to do a PhD in anthropology <laughs> to figure it out. <laughs> so I went back to Korea. Had you gone back to Korea much as a, as a never, child? Never. And I had completely forgotten the language. I mean, I spoke it fluently until I was five years old. And then our parents switched completely mm-hmm. to English because they wanted us. I mean, the idea at that time still was that we could assimilate completely, right? So they said, you know, just put away the, the Korean aspects. You're Americans now. You probably were probably not going back uh, to Korea because, you're, you know, in 1964, there were protests on the street. It wasn't until 1963 that the World Bank thought that Korea was solvent enough to be able to receive even the most concessional loans, right? So before mm-hmm. 63, Korea was such a basket case from the perspective of the World Bank they weren't even qualified for our most concessional lending instruments, right? So, so that's how poor it was. It's fascinating because I think people who grew up more in this era, I know a bit of the economic history here, yeah. but even for me, right, this is not at all right. the Korea I've heard about, right. right? I mean, it's yeah. not in, in the Asian tigers. And that's right. it's amazing how quickly the economic fortunes of, of that country changed. Right. And, you know, you remember MASH, right? I mean, mm-hmm. that was something I, a lot of people I mean, don't remember. I mean, remember is a strong word right, for how but, I feel about MASH. But, but. <laughs> MASH, was, MASH was about Korea. And, and although they were, although, you know, the characters on MASH, the doctors were, at least some of them, were compassionate in their own way, they were compassionate as if to people to be pitied. It wasn't an equal relationship with the people from another culture, right? right? So that's how I grew up. The sense that that's how the world worked was something I just had to work out for myself. So I went to Korea. I learned the language again. I did about three years of uh, of, uh, field work. Back in those days, the uh, different identity movements were what was powerful. You know, that was just when black Americans started calling themselves African Americans. And I remember conversations because we called ourselves Asian Americans. And black students would come and say, now, you know, we're thinking of changing and calling ourselves African Americans. What do you think about that? And we'd have discussions late into the night about, about those issues. So identity was everything. And what held a lot of cachet in the circles that I ran around in at Brown, which was at a place 
place called the Third World Center. And, th- and, you know, we weren't really third world, but we were all people of color, right? And so what held cachet was authenticity. So the mm. people who were from Texas and spoke Spanish, the people who were from the, you know, Puerto Rican community in New York and spoke Spanish, African-Americans who spoke black English, and there was a kind of hyper-appreciation of that authenticity mm. because it was a rejection of the notion that we are somehow less than human, that because of our characteristics, because of our ties to a previous sort of identity, we're somehow a little bit less than fully human. And so embracing that was the coolest thing you could do. So that's what I did. I went back and I tried, <laughs> I tried to embrace my Korean identity. And the time I was there, 84 to 88, Korea had just was preparing for the Olympics. So while I was trying to embrace something that I thought was more authentic and deep and real, and I wanted to say that Asian culture and Asian ideas are just as profound and important as as Western ones, the Koreans were saying, okay, we're going to enter the modern world and we're going to do it at lightning speed. And the message to me was sort of, and if you can help us, it's fine. But we actually, we, we don't need you. You know, we don't need you to come back and be some kind of a vanquishing hero for this country. In fact, you know, your Korean's not good enough. You're, 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 you really can't help us much at all. So they would where, ask. Where do you go back? Korea's a big country, obviously. Are you, are you in the city? Or are you in a rural area? In the city, yeah. So I, so I did visit a lot of rural areas. But I was in, uh, in Seoul. And because I was doing medical anthropology, I studied the political economy of the healthcare system. I looked at huh. pharmaceuticals and I looked at how the politics and the economics of the healthcare system were evolving along with the economy of Korea. So I made the argument that Korea's strategy was export-oriented growth. Right. The pharmaceutical industry got in on this and said, look, if you'll allow us literally unfettered sales of pharmaceuticals, we will become an export-oriented industry because, first of all, what we have to do is generate enough income to be able to become export-oriented. Well, very few countries have ever been able to export pharmaceuticals. I mean, pharmaceutical development is really complicated. So in the time that I was there, they never became export-oriented, but you could get anything, any drug in any drugstore anywhere uh, in Seoul, and you'd go in and they'd literally do a diagnosis and write you a prescription, sometimes give you intravenous uh, Mm -hmm. medicines, injections. And so I studied how the sort of move to modernism, trying to create another export-oriented industry, had deeply affected the healthcare system and care-seeking patterns. So this is fascinating, and I'm a bit of a healthcare wonk, so I just want to stop here for a minute. So the argument of the work you did was that when they were deciding how they would regulate the provision uh, of pharmaceuticals, whether I could go in and buy Cipro, I mean, which didn't exist back then, but, you know, as a hypothetical, off over the counter. The argument was not necessarily this is going to be the best thing for patients. It was if you think that the important thing for Korea is to become a modern, fully developed, very rich economy, and the way you want to do that is through high-value exports, then you need to give us as many opportunities in the marketplace as possible to get better, to develop profits, develop an industrial base so that we can then project Korean power and products beyond our borders. So it was a a economic strategy position, not a simple medical decision. And and I don't think it ever underwent like, you know, deep analysis at the level of the Ministry of Finance, but there was certainly that case. And, And, you know, you see that in other examples, right? So right before the SARS outbreak in the early 2000s, what the Chinese had done is they had really literally marketized their entire healthcare system. So all the different hospitals, they kind of became disconnected. They weren't part of a, of a single system anymore. 
anymore, and they required that hospitals would charge fees to make up most of their budget. And when we talked to them at that point, they said, well, you know, the market has worked so powerfully in so many other realms, we thought it would work here as well. So that's changed. And now, ironically, I'm involved in a huge project where we're trying to help the Chinese government reshape their healthcare system. But that happens. That if something works, that you want to try to see if it works everywhere. Right. So, you know, export-oriented growth had worked in televisions and ships and so many different areas, right? So they thought, well, maybe this could happen with pharmaceuticals. And what ended up happening was extremely high levels of drug resistance, for example, because at that time, you could walk into a drugstore, say, I have a cold, and they may give you at that time uh, an injection of what was the most exotic new cephalosporin, ceftriaxone. Oh, you you'd get ceftriaxone injected just inside the, inside the pharmacy. So my argument overall was looking at how the particular political economy of Korea during that period of time had a profound impact on the way people sought care and the way and the kinds of diseases that people had. The other thing I looked at was I, I looked at the, um, the rise of the advertising industry. And it turns out that in the UK, in the United States, and in Korea, and probably in a lot of other countries, it turned out that the advertising industry in each one of those countries started with the advertising of of medicines, right? So in the United States, it was Lydia Pinkham's uh, formula for women, right? That was the first example of something that was advertised and sales went up. And then when it, they stopped advertising, sales went down, hmm. right? So Lydia Pinkham's tonic for women, if you, if you look at the uh, indications, it's for kidney, liver, brain, all these ailments, and it's basically alcohol. It's about, you know, 30 <laughs> Well, <proof>. to be <laughs> fair. <laughs> to be fair, right? So, uh, so well, what, what is it Homer Simpson <laughs> says? Beer, the cause of and solution to all of life's problems? <laughs> and, you know, in, and if you look back, I mean, uh, uh, Raymond Williams, who was one of the great Marxist literary critics, in the UK actually shows that in the UK as well, advertising started with, uh, with drugs. And so I got into this because I was thinking, so why would that be? Uh, and, and I really got into the sort of uh, literary criticism and you know, the study of symbols and meanings at that time. And the argument from people who critiqued advertising said that advertising is trying to convince you. And again, Mad Men, right? Mad Men is all about this. Advertising is trying to convince you not that something is good and you should take it. That's, that's low-level advertising. What is really trying to convince you is that if you consume something, whether it's a medicine or a new pair of jeans or, or, or whatever, that somehow it transforms your experience of your life and makes it a little bit better. Mm -hmm. So it's natural that you'd start with things that actually can transform your experience huh. of the world. And so the advertising um, theorists at that time said that every country or every region or every society has to train its people to respond effectively to advertisement. If you take a very uh, sophisticated, subtle advertisement from one country and take it to a place that hasn't seen many advertisements, it doesn't work very well. So you have to train people over time. And so I tracked that. And there was one particular medicine that was extract of bear gallbladder, right? So bear gallbladder is a highly prized traditional Chinese medicine. Huh. If you Google North Carolina bears gallbladder, right, there are stories of bears who are found and everything else is intact, but the gallbladder is removed, right? So there's Those poaching are, in North Carolina to right. feed the, the Asian market. Yeah. If you get a particular full, you know, a real gallbladder from a bear that has a half moon on its chest, you know, it's tens of thousands of dollars, right? So that's in traditional Wait, Chinese how do they medicine. know if the gallbladder comes from a bear with a half moon on its chest? Uh, there, there are supposedly ways of, uh, they take pictures now, you know, the, all, all these kinds of, of ways of verifying, right? But, you're periscoping, uh, you're bear yeah, poaching. I, yeah, <laughs> I, you know, I don't know exactly how they 
they do it. It hasn't happened much, but back in the 90s, uh, you can find news stories of that happening. What uh, one pharmaceutical company did was they found that in bare gallbladder, there are particular kinds of bile acids, right? And supposedly, these bile acids are what makes bare gallbladder uh, effective as a, as a cure. And so they artificially manufactured, you know, they synthesized mm. that particular bile acid and began to sell it as sort of like a cure-all tonic. That product in Korea became the third fastest selling drug in all of Korea for 15 or 20 years. Hmm. And it was sold as a drug, it was very expensive, and it was sold as a drug with which you can signal your, your, your filial piety, your devotion to your parents. So kids would buy this drug and give it to their parents because it's supposed to restore the kidney, the liver, and it's essentially an inert substance. I mean, there's, there are no real indication for it in the biomedical literature at, back at that time. The traditional Korean physicians said, this has nothing to do with what we do. Right? What, what, right. what you really need is to find the bear, get it out, then you have to dry it, then you have to put it through this, and you add this, and that's the only time that it's effective. Right? So you had both Western medicine and traditional medicine saying that this product is useless. But through advertising, through connecting this particular bile acid, literally, to filial piety and to other good things that in a rapidly changing society young people wanted to signal, right? third largest selling drug in Korea. And the argument I made was that in these kinds of societies, modern capitalism, it's no longer the ownership of the means of production that are important. It's the ownership of the means of symbolic production. And if you can get consumers to change their behavior so fundamentally, then you're on to something. Hold, hold on. I want to stop here because I'm not, I'm not smart enough to fully follow what you just said. It is no longer the means of production, but the means of symbolic production. Right. Just, just unpack that for me for a so, minute because so, uh, it, it sounds super well, profound. So, 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 Korea, <laughs> so Korea was hurtling toward becoming a consumer society, just as China is trying to right now, right? So they were hurtling toward becoming a consumer society. And because there weren't the same kind of strict regulations about what you could and couldn't say, these folks could advertise essentially an inert substance substance as something that would transform your heart, your kidney, your liver, all these different things, right? Mm -hmm. So they controlled the means of symbolic production, and there were no regulations to stop them from making claims that simply weren't true. So in controlling the means of symbolic production, they created demand for their project and sold it at extremely high levels. In fact, that particular drug company renamed itself the Great Bear Pharmaceutical Company. Right? <laughs> now, they've gone on and done other, other things, and they didn't do anything illegal. And, you know, the placebo effect— And frankly, effect, probably saved a lot of bears. Yeah. And, and you know, the placebo effect is profound. I mean, the, the one of the things we know from doing studies of medicines versus placebo is that placebo is profound. It's a powerful effect. So they were selling something, and it was probably having all the social impacts— that the consumers and the and the purchasers, when they were different, wanted. You know, the expression of filial piety. You take the medicine, and because your children gave it to you, and all this advertising is saying it's going to cure your liver and your kidney and everything else, it probably played its role, but it was effectively an inert substance. So Marx argued that it was uh, controlling the means, of, the means of production that was really, really important, mm -hmm. right? In this case, it, you know, it wasn't so much controlling the means of production because you had to create a demand in modern consumer society for something. No matter how well you control the means of production, if nobody wanted what you were selling, then you were in trouble. Right. In this case, advertising and being able to manipulate symbols in a way to create desire and demand was the critical piece. Hmm. That's really fascinating. So, okay, so you, you're doing your field work in Korea, mm -hmm. and you are there finding that perhaps the reception 
to you coming to Korea to do your field work is not what we thought. Maybe both, if I understand you correctly, both because Korea is going very, very fast towards internationalism, cosmopolitanism, modernity, and perhaps you were looking for an experience that is what you thought was authentic and maybe was no longer actually authentic to the experience of somebody living in Korea. And I think the most important experience for me, just the rigor of the intellectual engagement with anthropology kind of cured me of uh, facile notions of authenticity. Hmm. Right? And what we were experiencing at that time was people like Jacques Derrida and um, Jean Baudrillard, these people who were the postmodern critics of everything. Right? I mean, they, they, they basically argued that notions like authenticity are simply words in a political and constantly changing field. You don't know what they mean. They're not connected to anything else. And so we were in this, you know, it was postmodernism back mm-hmm. in those days. That was the big word that uh, everyone was using. Notions that this is authentic and this is not. I mean, that's what, I think that's what undergraduates go into anthropology sort of struggling with. Well, this is, this is really what the original culture was like, and we need to help them maintain their original ideas. But in fact, original ideas change all the time. I learned in, in South Korea that when people like my uncles and my mother go back, right, they look like these anachronisms from a bygone, the language they use, you know, the way that they uh, think about the world, even the the things, the the thing that they called the bathroom, right? The word for bathroom had moved from byeonso to hwajangshil. You know, byeonso was really the comfort space where you take comfort, right? And Mm. it was a little too graphic for modern Korea. So they turned it into hwajangshil, which is really makeup room, right? Hwajang is to makeup, right? So all these words had changed fundamentally. And what I learned was that societies and cultures change so rapidly. There's no such thing as pointing to this or another thing as authentic. And because I spoke the language now, I could kind of keep up with how things were changing. Right. I'll tell you, one of the things that, that's changed even since I left uh, South Korea. And when my, did you leave? Just put so us in 1988. Time here. So 1988. I was there from 84 to 88 mm-hmm. doing my work. It used to be that male customers in a restaurant could use a very informal, impolite language with, uh, with waitresses. Korean is a very complicated language, and there's many levels of honorifics. And so, like, when my uncles went back a few years ago, they almost got slapped because you can't do that anymore. <laughs> you can't use that kind of impolite language anymore. And so things are changing all the time. And so what I was really cured of is this notion that there's anything particular, that there's, a, there's an authentic way of seeing anything. And then as you learn a language, individual personalities start opening up. And what you start seeing is this contested space where women were saying, you know, that kind of sexist behavior has nothing to do with Confucian philosophy. My mother, my mother, in fact, is a Confucian uh, scholar. She, she ended up doing a Ph.D., at the University of Iowa when we were living there in Confucianism. And she argued that social justice and equality were equally deep and profound ideas inside Confucianism. Mm. And so, you know, she would argue that you sexist men are simply utilizing the notion of Confucianism to justify your own bad behavior. Don't use Confucianism to justify your bad behavior. Let's have it out. You know, is it really okay for you to treat women that way? Is it really okay for you to treat people from other societies and cultures that way? The learning of the language was absolutely liberating to me. You know, I, I... I, I still don't speak that well. Whenever I go to Korea, I, I understand what people are saying, but I don't speak in Korean in Korea because I, I don't sound um, like a native speaker. So, for example, the, the experience of going and learning Korean was great because now the Secretary General and I of the United Nations, Ban Ki-moon, and I work very closely together. 
And it's great because no matter where we are, we start speaking to each other in Korean. Nobody knows what we're talking about. <laughs> it's usually, it's usually about, about utterly mundane stuff, but they think we're like plotting schemes to, 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 uh, to change the world when we speak to each other. Okay, so you come back yeah. now and reconnect with Farmer. Yeah. And what happens next? We begin asking that question again. So given our ridiculously elaborate educations, what's the nature of our responsibility to the world? And, and he took me on around these authenticity, racial justice issues. And he would say things to me like, oh, so you're Korean, you think you're oppressed? Why don't you come with me to Haiti? Right? And, you know, I had been in the middle at, at Brown up until 1982, and then in anthropology, you know, in anthropology, sort of my sense of, of the racism I had experienced at that time in the 80s, there was still this notion that there was something about Asian culture that made them just a little bit inferior. You know, Ezra Vogel, a professor of mine at, uh, at Harvard, wrote this book called Japan is Number One very popular mm-hmm. in Japan, right? But it was a completely different idea that an Asian country could dominate the global economy, right. right? And it was threatening. It was a fundamentally threatening idea. So I was still in the middle of all that, and here comes Paul saying, you're not oppressed. Give me a break, right? And he said, come with me to Haiti. Let's see what they call you, right? I didn't know what he meant by that. But I got there, and immediately they started calling me Blanc. Right? White, right? But it's not really white. It really means foreigner, right? It means someone who has access to resources. It means someone who can get on a plane and come here and do things for a while and then go back, right? It's, so it's, it had this meaning. You know, African Americans have been called blanc at our clinic in Haiti because it, it seems to the Haitians that they're so different. And uh, when I went there, they asked if I was Paul's brother, right? Wow. Now, and it wasn't that they couldn't tell the difference, mm-hmm. but they didn't know what our lives were like back in the United States. Maybe we were brothers. Who knew? We were both light-skinned. And I saw— And it's worth just saying for, yeah. for the audience, Paul Farmer is not Asian. No, he's—yeah, he's, he's, right. uh, he's an Irish, Catholic, white American. Right. Uh, if you haven't read Mountains Beyond Mountains, it's a great book. It's about his life, really. And so I went there, and they called me Blanc. And I had never seen— that kind of poverty. There, there are poor people in, in Korea. There, I'd been to other parts of the world, the Philippines, but I'd never seen poverty that was that stunningly horrific. I mean, this was, you know, literally 50 minutes from Miami on a plane, and the the extent of the poverty, the deforestation, it was just it was stunning to me, and it really it knocked me out, and it made me decide. Okay, look, this project of authenticity and being Korean-American or Korean racial justice, I'm not against it. It's great. And as I said, it's wonderful that I'm back to it saying, you know, diversity and inclusion, Mm -hmm. this is the key to economic growth in the future. But back then I decided, okay, so that's not my project anymore. The project has to be sort of this combination of of my, my mother's and father's world, which is providing the best possible quality of health care to the poorest people and then making a point of it saying, you keep saying this is not possible, and we're going to keep showing you that it is possible and that we can get just as good of outcomes and that this is the, this is the nature of our responsibility. So I want to talk to you about this making a point of it because I think it's something that, unless you're familiar with the Partners in Health story, is really sets us apart. You and, and Paul Farmer and, and your other colleagues in this project are not the only people who have gone and done tremendous important, profound medical work in extraordinarily impoverished areas. But Partners in Health acted as simultaneously a aid operation and an ideological force in the sort of global aid and modern public health community. And I'm really curious how it developed that second dimension, because I think it's very easy to imagine 
two young save the world kind of guys going and doing the first thing. But it was the ability to translate it into the second that I think gave it such a profound and lasting impact. Well, you know, the fact that both Paul and I were doing our PhDs in anthropology, uh, one of the central questions in anthropology is how do you encounter the other and what do you do about it? What do you do about it when you're an anthropology graduate student from Harvard who goes into situations of incredible poverty and all you do is record, all you do is describe? What does that mean? Is that okay? And so that was a burning argument at that time. And for the most part, because most other anthropology graduate students weren't medical doctors and weren't supported by these amazing people, Tom White is among them who, who supported our work. How, they, how did they, you get supported by people like Tom White? Because you're just two, two young guys. Yeah. Tom was an extremely successful construction company owner, very committed Catholic, and wanted to give every penny of his money away, which he ended up doing before he died. Mm. And he wanted to do it, but he wanted to really have it affect the poorest of the poor. So Tom loved the fact that we served people, the, probably the poorest people in the Western Hemisphere, rural, landless peasants in Haiti. Those words, for people who know Latin America, they're probably among the poorest of anyone in, uh, in the Western Hemisphere. So he liked that part of it. But then Paul and I felt that we had to make sense of it on a much deeper level, right? It, it couldn't be charitable work. We just didn't like the notion that the subject was our generosity to these poor people. I mean, we, I fundamentally rejected that from my experience of growing up as a Korean-American, and he did through uh, you know, his own experience. He grew up very poor in Florida, but also through anthropology, that charity to those who are lesser humans but we are exalted in that we are generous to lesser humans. The old Albert Schweitzer notion of uh, the African is my brother, but without doubt he is my younger brother, right? Lots of people admire Alfred Schweitzer a lot, but the fact of the matter is that he really did not bring modern health care into his hospitals. And, uh, uh, you know, even, even physicians from uh, Harvard who went to visit Schweitzer, deeply moved by what he was doing, came back and wrote critiques that, that uh, were saying that they were simply appalled. Do you want to just say real quick yeah. what he was doing? So Albert Schweitzer was a, uh, was a physician, and he went to Africa, and he started these hospitals. And he was renowned as a, as a deeply religious man who, in serving the poor in Africa, became a hero to many. And, you know, he, he is. For his time, we have to understand him in his time in a way. But we studied that example, and we said we are never going to do that. We are never going to sat, be satisfied with awful conditions and extremely poor quality care just because the African, quote-unquote, is my younger brother. So this radical notion that not only do the poor deserve as good a care as anyone else, but maybe even they deserve it more than anyone else, that came actually from our readings of uh, liberation theology. A set of ideas that had a profound influence on our current pope, by the way, was developed in Latin America. And our organization had people from every different religion. We had Muslims, Hindus, Christians, Jews, everybody in Inside Partners in Health. But in looking at all the different sort of formulations of what is to be done in poor countries, this one made the most sense. And it was related to this notion. And the Catholic priests who, who were proponents of this got into big trouble. It was the notion that if Jesus were alive today, where would he be? Would he be sitting with the kings and the queens and the royalty and the rich people? No, he would be in the poorest communities, and therefore that's what we're going to do. And the proponents of liberation theology, it wasn't just it wasn't just a religious idea. They had actually a method, and the method was borrowed from the work of Paulo Freire, a great uh, Brazilian educator, 
in a book called Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And what he said was that as you encounter people in a poor community, you do three things. You you'd go through the process of see, judge, act. The first question you ask is, what is the nature of your reality? And then the second question is, and so what has made your reality the way it is? And then the third thing you do is to say, and so therefore, what are you going to do about it? And so there was actually a methodology of how to work with and live with and live in solidarity with poor people that was really quite different from the preconceived notions and plans of generous charitable organizations. So that's what we did. Everywhere we went, we sat with the community and said, what do you want? What is it that is, uh, is most important to you? And then we tried to follow that path. And, of course, just about everybody wanted food, health care, you know, access to education. So that's what we ended up doing. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. So you, you come into this, and, and I think it, it's important to kind of set the scene, and, and you've brought this up so far in the conversation, but I just want to make it very clear. One of the things that's very different about Partners in Health is that there is previously a view that because of the sharp cost trade-offs primarily, but, but not just that, also because of theories of what kinds of medicine regimes people would stick to, how good their understanding of their own health and healthcare systems were, that a kind of very low baseline of care should be spread as thinly right. as possible right. to right. meet as many of the needs as you possibly could. And Partners in Health rejected that, and, and, it, and it argued that the, the people who were being treated deserved as good or better care than people got in first world countries. If you had a child dying in front of you from a condition that was expensive to treat, but that we would treat in America, the fact that you could save more children by letting that child die but getting a lot more kids anti-malarial drugs was not a reason to, to do that. And I want to talk about that because it's a really powerful, inspirational concept. And yet you work in a place that is filled with economists now, right? And the cost benefit of it is real. The $5,000 it takes to treat one condition is $5,000 that could be spent treating 500 conditions. How did you think about that then when you did have to make those trade-offs? Because you, you didn't have unlimited staff. You didn't have unlimited money. So you were having, in order to spend more on one person, you were presumably having to turn away others. And how did you absorb that? How did you prioritize around that? We were always short of money. I mean, literally, Tom White gave us every penny he had. And yet we were always short of money. And so, of course, we were making choices as well. What we were trying to argue is that to say that there's not enough money is just a lie. 
there are plenty of money in the world. It's just not going to health care for poor people. Mm-hmm. And so at a time when there were maybe a couple hundred million dollars a year for all of global health efforts, very little for global health efforts overall, um, we were saying, this is crazy. We need to spend a lot more. And it was around this time when we were really arguing for more funding that we met Jeff Sachs. He came to Haiti, saw our project, and he said, you just have to stop using the M word and start using the B word, you know, from millions to billions. And we never thought that that was possible. But then it happened. So, you know, in the early 2000s, the Global Fund. Jeff these Sachs, things, I just want to say, is a, a well-known economist. Economist yeah. at uh, Jeff Sachs, the, the economist at uh, Columbia University. I mean, Jeff had a profound impact on changing the way we saw this. We had this innate sense that when people told us that there wasn't enough money, and we go to the Brigham and Women's Hospital that had a larger budget. The Brigham and Women's Hospital had a larger budget than the country of Haiti, right? We said— Wait, really? Yeah. Not just for health care, but— Everything, right? That yeah. is an incredible So, so you know, we thought, we thought it's not because there's not enough money in the world. It's that we're not committed enough to providing health care for everybody. And so—and we knew that this was kind of a, a Sisyphean task that we'd taken on. We knew that, you know, we'd, no matter how much progress we thought we'd making, the, the rock would roll down the hill again at some point. But we thought that— look, there's got to be some integrity to what we do, right? We're not going to compromise. We're going to insist that everyone in the world gets access to really high-quality care, not necessarily PET scanners and MRIs, because I'm not convinced that those are anywhere near as helpful as we'd like to think they are in modern medicine, but care for HIV and tuberculosis and you know the, the, the most basic health services. And we kept doing it, and the world kept changing around us. So many people were involved. Jeff is one, you know, Bill Fage, uh, who was a former head of the U.S. Centers for Disease Control, and was one of the first advisors for Bill and Melinda Gates. And Bill and Melinda Gates, I mean, my goodness, their impact has just been incredibly powerful. The fact that the richest couple in the world would do everything they could to try to improve health outcomes. Now, you know, Bill and Paul and I have had disagreements o- over the years. I mean, Bill's made these arguments about cost-effectiveness powerfully and, and I think in a very reasonable way. But that's not been our role, our role at Partners in Health. And it's not my role now. The Partners in Health role is not my role now. But our role at Partners in Health was to continue to push the boundaries of what people thought was possible. I went from Partners in Health to the World Health Organization in 2003 because, you know, my good friend who's campaigned for director general of WHO, Paul and I had run. and we were, we were part of a team that ran his campaign. Out of the blue, he became director general. And he said, well, you know, why don't you come? And I said, I'll come only if we can launch a global movement to treat HIV. And this was at a time when we were still arguing whether it was possible or not. So we went there, and I thought, the only way to do this is just to set a huge target and say we're going to go from 50,000 people on treatment in Africa to 3 million in two and a half years. And everyone said, oh, this is terrible. This is crazy. You guys are out of your minds. How could you possibly do this? But I thought that what we had to do was quickly just change everyone's mindset quickly. And by doing that, we thought that all of these sort of, oh, no, it's not possible. You can't do it. It's too complicated. It's too expensive. That we could, we could change all those arguments by just saying, you know, we're not going to have this argument anymore. We're just going to set a target and go. And it actually worked. There are 15 million now. So as I said, and it's continued to work. But now, in my role now, I haven't given up on the notion that we can find lots more resources for development, lots more resources for healthcare, education. But we have to be um, 
much more creative than before because it used to be official development assistance, which has been 100 to 120 billion for quite a long time. It used to be that donors would say, well, we'd love to give it all away, but we're having trouble finding absorption capacity. In other words, there were countries that were so poor, you could put money there, but you know you wouldn't know what would happen right. to it because there was no capacity of absorbing it. You know, We never quite believed that, but then later, been to many countries where I've seen that uh, actually to be the case. But now, because development has succeeded in so many places, absorption capacity has far outstripped the money that's available. So now what my job is is to be as innovative as possible, use leverage, right? And one of the great things that happened to me here at the bank is I've learned finance. I mean, I, I, you know, look, I ran a university, so I knew something about finance, but not development finance. And I truly think that now the only way that we're going to tackle some of these horrifically complicated problems climate change, refugees, pandemic risk, is to be as sophisticated in the way that we use leverage and balance sheets as the rich are every single day in making themselves wealthier. I mean, you know, the the most successful businesses and business people in the world are incredibly creative in the way they use finance. And, you know, frankly, we haven't been as creative as we could be at the World Bank and throughout the world. If you can take a grant of $10 million and link it to a loan that we can get on the capital markets at very good rates and blend these two instruments, it may not be a grant, but you can multiply that money by three, four times, mm -hmm. uh, maybe more, uh, and give a 40-year maturity loan at 0% interest, which just about any country can afford. And with that much larger scale, they can do things that they would never be able to do if they were just waiting for grants. So now I'm still in the business of trying to expand the pie, but now I've got many, many more tools than before. How many people work at the World Bank? 15,000. How do you manage a 15,000-person organization? So I manage a 60-person organization. <laughs> yeah. And I find that communicating across 60 people appears to be, and this might just be my failures, basically impossible, right? Like telephone, the telephone problem just among 60. Sure. And all of my employees speak the same language I do. How do you come into an institution of 15,000 people, has a long history, that you're coming into quite late, you didn't start the World Bank, you have different priorities for it than it had, not in every way, but, but in some important ways, and manage change throughout that? It, it seems like a nearly impossible task to me. It's the hardest thing I've ever done. You know, I've been a student of management. Paul Farmer uh, continues to ridicule me mercilessly about my interest in management. But, I mean, <laughs> it's a natural sort of result of being an anthropologist. You think, so how do you get these complex organizations to work more effectively and efficiently? And there's no question that certain companies and certain organizations have done it. And so what does it take? And so I've been a student of leadership as well. So coming into this organization, the one thing that I knew we had to change was one answer. I mean, McKinsey has been extremely helpful for, with, to us on a number of occasions, but they did a survey for us, and there was one piece of information that stuck with me. And, was, and when we asked technical people, how much of your time do you spend providing technical assistance to other regions of the World Bank? And the answer was like less than 1%. It was just a tiny proportion of the time. So in other words, the knowledge that we were providing, which is critical to our existence as an institution, was basically regional knowledge. It wasn't moving from one region to another. So I had to make sure that every single one of our clients got the benefit of regional knowledge. I mean, excuse me, of global knowledge. Because if it was just regional knowledge, there are regional development banks, there are smaller entities that could have played the same role. So I knew that we had to change that. 
The other thing I knew we had to change was that collaboration across the institution just wasn't happening. So these are sort of classic problems in management, you know, classic problems. So I brought in people to help, people like Alan Mulally, you know, the former CEO mm-hmm. of Ford. Alan's been here three or four times to help us think about how to organize things. Uh, the people at McKinsey have helped us. But at the end of the day, we just had to take on a change program, and it caused a huge amount of distress inside the organization because effectively people were unsure whether they'd have a job or not. And that had to, and in order to do an honest job of it and to really assess what we needed, we had to let that uncertainty sort of hang in the air for, for quite some time. With an organization this big where the effects of so many of the projects will take a long time to be felt, how do you know if you're making progress or you're just creating confusion and frustration? You don't know, certainly, especially in the early stages, right? But one of the things I took when I was at the World Health Organization, I took the AIDS department through a major overhaul. When I was at Dartmouth, we went through a major cost-cutting and uh, strategic planning process. So I'd done it a couple times before. And the one thing I knew is that you really don't know before you start exactly what the end product's going to look like. But the most important thing is that you got to have a thick skin and you got to get through it. And so I warned the board, look, there's going to be a lot of noise. There's going to be a lot of unhappy people. But I'm telling you now because I need your support. And all the things we were doing, the board agreed with. And so that, that was really helpful. But when things started getting really loud and people started you know, gathering in the atrium and protesting against me, everybody, including board members and, and uh, my own senior staff, got nervous about it. But what I kept saying is, look, for now, let me take all the heat. I'll take all the heat. I'll take it all on myself for now because we just got to get through this. So in the year that we went through the huge change process, our lending went up probably 20%. The demand for our services went up, partly due to to headwinds in the global economy, but partly due to the fact that we promised that if you have a problem, and this was the promise I made to all the governors, if you have a problem, we are literally going to scour the globe to find the group, the entity, the country that has solved that problem in the most effective and efficient way. And we're going to bring that to you, not as a a prescription for what you should do, but we're going to bring many different examples to you so that you can think about which of these great experiences in the world might help you solve your problem. This is is what I I said when I first met uh, Prime Minister Modi. We actually gave Prime Minister Modi an iPad to show him that here's your problem. You have public-private partnerships that are stuck. Press that button, Prime Minister Modi. He pressed it and out popped... 10 different examples of countries and companies that had solved the problem of stuck PPPs. And when he looked at that, he said, okay, I get it. What you're going to do is uh, you're going to be, in a sense, my uh, consulting group, but not a consultant that comes and shows me things, PowerPoints, or tells me what to do. You're going to be my partner in trying to learn from all these other experiences that someone in your organization actually has direct experience with. Right. So I think that is real, the fact that we now provide global knowledge to every single one of our clients. It's not perfect. It's, it still needs to be improved. But that's really, really changed. Collaboration across the institution, lots of talk about public-private collaboration inside the World Bank Group, and there really wasn't much of it. I've really pushed that, and now it's happening much more than it ever has before. But, you know, change is tough, especially it's especially tough when you're uh, reducing expenditures. Nobody in the organization could remember when there had been an institution-wide, every single part of the institution, an institution-wide expenditure review where we actually reduced our expenditures, and we reduced our expenditures $400 million. So a change process in the middle of an expenditure review it's sort of, you know, the perfect recipe for people being very upset. Right? 
How so, did, they were. I'm telling you, they were. <laughs> and uh, I'm very happy to be uh, coming out the other end of it now. How, how does the World Bank communicate what it knows, both to um, countries, but also externally? I mean, something I, I've known a lot of World Bank economists. I've been in, in D.C., and I found over the years it's something they think about a lot and worry about a lot is all of the research and knowledge, all of the papers, all of the expertise that is locked up in some part of the organization even they may not know. Off, I will hear about a, a paper that is amazing from seven years ago that, that I never found out about. How do you make sure that the tremendous amount being spent on, on research and expertise here is somehow being distributed and not just creating mountains of, of sort of unnavigable information? Right. In the last uh, even couple of months, this is, I think, among the most profound questions that I'm trying to deal with. Because let me just give you an example. We know that when a child is stunted, there's a very specific definition is low height for age. And low height for age is especially ominous because it means that the effects of malnutrition, the effects of a toxic environment, the effects of not enough stimulation from parents has been literally baked into your brain. And so the science of stunting now shows us that kids who are stunted literally have fewer neuronal connections in their brain and are not going to be able to perform as well in school, take on difficult, sophisticated educational paths. So this is real. This is the stuff that we know in, in the United States. They're trying to get the country to treat this as kind of an emergency. You know, Indonesia, middle-income country, has 37% of its kids stunted. Pakistan, I just returned, 45% of their kids are stunted. And the continent of Africa is anywhere from 35 to 45% of all the children are stunted. Now, we know that for every inch of height below the average in your country, 2% reduction in your income in uh, 20 years later, right? So if you add all that up, you cannot grow. But it's even worse than that. Because if some of the predictions are true, if agriculture is only going to become more mechanized and capital intensive, if light manufacturing is only going to become more mechanized and capital intensive, then you're going to see the hollowing out of jobs that people with low educational levels took in the past. And so what that means is that in the future, probably the one real certainty in life is that everyone's going to have to be more digitally competent. And if you're walking into the future with half your kids stunted, you are setting yourself up for failure. It's the message that I gave to Pakistan when I was there last week. And it, we're trying to get on an emergency footing to change the situation. Now, the reason I brought that up is because what I'm pushing for is when we know something like 2% reduction in income with an inch loss in height for age, right? If we know that, and we also know in another part of the organization that try as we might to protect and support smallholder farmers, that uh, mechanization is going to happen, and mechanized farming is not job-rich. And we know also that robotics and artificial intelligence may turn garment manufacturing into a capital-intensive, high-tech business that can only be done in wealthy countries. If we know all that, then why are we not bringing this into what we do every day in terms of our lending? My goodness, we should, we should focus on ensuring that no child is stunted and do it as quickly as possible because any notion you have of equality of opportunity goes right out the door when you have this level of stunting, right? So it's not only a challenge to get it out to the world, Ezra. It's a challenge right inside our organization because one group of people do this, another group of people do that, and they all come and they have their own issue, and especially to me, and they try to get me to talk about their issue so that it becomes a greater priority. What I'm, what I'm trying to ask is, look, 
What about building the grid in Africa? Right? We, we know that we need lots more energy in Africa, but should we do it through building the grid, or can we do it through off-grid solutions, you know, uh, solar and wind-based uh, micro and mini-grids? And if so, why don't we put enough capital to building those kinds of systems so that we actually move the market and bring the price down even more? This is not yet a conversation that we're having across the entire World Bank Group. We're starting to have it. Inspired by um, Alan Mulally, we have something called the Group Business Review. Alan had what he called the Business Plan Review. Every Thursday morning, three hours, they went through the whole business. And everyone in Ford was part of it, and that's how they made their decisions. Mm. We can't do that. Our business is so complicated, and there's so many countries and so many different kinds of things. It's not, it's not one thing. It's not making cars. So we couldn't quite do it that way. But now every week we sit for two and a half hours and we talk about some critical issue with all the vice presidents. And we, we try to come up with what is our theory of change, right? And, you know, what are the things that we should focus on most? There was a decision point a couple of decades back. And the decision point was, do we put in telephone lines in Africa or do we step back and let cellular phones move forward, right? Hmm. And, and that was a real discussion at the bank. And luckily, we made the right decision back then and didn't go into massive, you know, construction of telephone poles, right? But the question we have to ask ourselves is, are there decisions like that right now that we're not paying enough attention to? I, I tell you, I'm, I'm, I'm really worried. Uh, if you have 45% stunting and agriculture and uh, manufacturing jobs are getting hollowed out because of technology... What's the plan? There's no question that we have to improve agricultural productivity. There's no question that we have to improve access to education. No question that we have to try to stop stunting as, as much as possible. But I think there are fundamental questions that now we have to ask ourselves in thinking about uh, the path forward in development. I would say conservatively, I have about four hours more of questions to ask you about about that, about the, the effort to ex end extreme poverty. So I hope we can do a, a part two on this I'd sometime. I'd love to. I'd love to. Um, let me close here by asking you a question I, I try to ask all my guests. What are three books you would recommend to everyone? One of the most influential books for me as a graduate student was a book called Orientalism by Edward Said. Mm -hmm. And Edward Said was a Christian Palestinian literary critic and he took the ideas of Michel Foucault. Michel Foucault was, you know, in France, every 10, 15 years, they have, like, the intellectual of the moment. Mm -hmm. And Michel Foucault was the intellectual of the moment just before I went to graduate school. And Michel Foucault used to talk about discourses. It was very much sort of in the spirit of Wittgenstein that, that there are conversations that happen that are completely disconnected from other conversations, and that these conversations that happen structure a view of something that is based on the participants in that conversation, not based on fact or anything else. So he wrote about prisons and clinics, and he showed that um, the discussion that people have in a particular discourse about something else tells you much more about the people who are having the discussion than the thing about which they are talking. So Edward Said did that kind of analysis in the way the West speaks about the Orient. And for him, it was the Arab world, but included all of us. And it was really powerful in the sense that it helped me to understand that all the reactions that I had been receiving since I was a little kid, the stuff that I read about what the World Bank and other organizations said about how hopeless Korea was in the 1960s, that it was part of a discourse that said more about the people who were involved in that discourse than about what was happening on the ground. So that was really powerful. Another little book that um, I read all the time is a book by a um, Vietnamese Buddhist monk named Thich Nhat Hanh 
called The Miracle of Mindfulness. It was given to me by my mother, right? And uh, I read this book at Santa Cruz. <laughs> yes, right, right. I think you uh, have to read this book at Santa Cruz. <laughs> yes, and, and you know, I have, a, I have a very good friend who was an anthropology professor at Santa Cruz for a long time. We visited her. It's a wonderful place, yeah. by the way. It's a wonderful place. And he talked about the importance of meditation and mm-hmm. being mindful, right? The, the really, truly astounding thing is that the science has caught up with what we've been, uh, what we what we have thought were the benefits of meditation. And the science has caught up in the most wonderful way. There was just a study done, and they they actually were able to uh, randomize this particular study. They studied the impact of real meditation, teaching a group of people how to meditate from the perspective of, say, the Buddhists or transcendental meditation. And another, they did sham meditation. So they sat and pretended like they were meditating, but they told them all kinds of crazy things. Placebo meditation. Placebo (laughs) meditation. Literally placebo. And there were were real differences in the outcomes. So that was the first randomized study. Now, you know, there have been other studies that showed that, for example, in students who meditate even for 15 minutes a day, the thickness of the connection between their prefrontal cortex and the amygdala, the amygdala is the seat of fear and anxiety, the, the thickness, in other words, the blood flow, actually increases. Right? And studies of, uh, of the brains of Buddhist monks show that there's this extraordinary connection mm-hmm. and that some Buddhist monks actually don't even have a startle response. Right? So wow. we always knew that there was something biological about it, but I can tell you that the evidence now is overwhelming. Do you have a daily meditation practice? I, you know, I wish I could say it was daily. I, I, do it, I do it as frequently as I can. I do walking meditation. I do it sitting in a car. One of my very closest friends has been a Buddhist monk in Korea for 30 years, and he, I, I sit with him. Quite apart from any religious belief, this mm-hmm. is, there's, there's now you know, overwhelming evidence that it's good for you. And the third book, I have to admit, you know, I love Carl Hyacin books. <laughs> I don't know. Carl Hyacin was a, a reporter at the Miami Herald. And Carl was an environmentalist before it was cool to be an environmentalist. Have you don't know Carl? I don't know him. Because Carl, a, is a, he, he writes humorous books, raunchy humorous books, and it's almost all about awful people in Florida who also happen to destroy the environment. So academic for your spirit and, uh, and, and for pure enjoyment. Dr. Kim, thank you very much. Thanks so much, Ezra. We'll do this again. I, I promise to. to do this if you will give me time. I would right. love to. Thanks very much. Thank you again to, to Jim Young, Kim. I really, really thought that was fantastic. And I really do hope we're able to do that, that part two sometime soon. So, so stay tuned for that. Thank you to my producer, AC Valdez, to Vox.com and Panoply for putting on this show. And we will be back next week. <laughs>